Well, good morning. It's great to be here this morning. Uh, I'm, my name is Kevin. I'm the pastor of student ministries here, and I am thrilled to be worshiping with you. Thank you, worship team, for leading us and guiding us in this time. Um, I'm excited to get into the Old Testament this morning, but um, before I do that, I just want to share a little story and a little update. Um, a friend of mine, his name is Timotheus. He has a son who is suffering from seizures. He's in the hospital right now. And the doctors are not quite sure what to do. They, they don't have an answer. They don't have a solution for these seizures. So what they've done is they've put him in a medically induced coma. And so my friend Timotheus is in the midst of this right now. And I don't know about you, but I wonder if you've ever been in a place like that. You may not have a son in the hospital who's in a coma, but maybe you've had times in your life where you've been afraid, where the situation is too overwhelming, where you've had enough, and all you want to do is run. I think there, there will be times, we know this, if we've lived life for any amount of time, we know that there will be times when we've had enough and we don't have enough to keep moving forward. When we get to that place, we need something that challenges our perspective, that clarifies our passions and reminds us of our purpose. I think in our text this morning, we're going to see God at work. We're going to see God giving us the answer for what that enough might be for what enough looks like for us in our lives when we've had enough. We're going to see God's gentle care. We're going to see God's word of grace. And we're going to see God's covenant plan in action. As you're turning to 1 Kings chapter 19, let me explain the context and what's going on here. Ahab is on the throne. He's the king of Israel. The queen, Jezebel, she's the one that's really in charge, though. She's calling the shots. This is a fierce and cruel woman. And what she says goes. Ahab, not so much. A, not a woman, and B, not very fierce. So Queen Jezebel, she's calling the shots. She's running the show. And the national religion at the time centers around Baal worship. So because Ahab and Jezebel have decided, hey, Baal is the God that we're going to choose, that's who we're going to go with, the nation's going to follow, and they're going to worship Baal as well. In the previous chapter, chapter 18, we see Elijah come on the scene. He is a man of God, but he is also a man of great compassion and great courage. And he has a plan. So he sets out this great plan, this incredible plan, in fact. He's going to stand up to the prophets of Baal. So he challenges 450 prophets of Baal to a contest. It's a contest on Mount Carmel. And here's what he says. He he essentially says, hey, how much you want to bet 
my God is better than yours. Isn't that refreshing? We have a prophet, a man of God that's so much like us, competitive to the core. Everything's a race. Everything's a contest. Okay, I can relate to this. And he calls out these 450 Baal prophets. And he, essentially, he says, the contest is simple. It's going to go like this. We're both going to build altars, and we're going to pray to our God, and whoever's God can call down fire and consume this altar wins. Whosoever God answers our prayer wins. It's really simple. So the Baal prophets, they get all charged up. They start crying to their God. But nothing happens. So Elijah, in classic fashion, he's a competitive guy, he starts taunting them. He says, well, guys, maybe Baal is asleep right now. Or, or maybe he's just taken a pause to go use the restroom. Why don't you shout louder? And so they do. And they get more and more charismatic. They get more and more energy filled. They start doing crazy and ridiculous things, but to no avail, nothing happens. And then Elijah steps up. And he ups the ante. He says, soak it. Soak my altar. After the altar is thoroughly saturated, he prays to God, and the miraculous and the incredible happens. Fire comes down from heaven, consumes the altar, not just the sacrifice, not just the bull that's on top. The bull is gone, completely nothing. The altar, the stone, is reduced to ash. This is incredible. So after the fire consumes this formerly saturated altar, after uh, the prophet calls for all of the 450 Baal prophets to be slain right there on the spot, and it happens, after the people who are there standing and have witnessed this fall to the ground and say, wow, God, your God, the God of Israel, is the clear victor. He's the winner. After all that happens, Elijah packs up his stuff and he says, runs right to Jezreel, the nation's capital. Why? A victory lap, of course. He's thinking, I just won a decisive victory on Mount Carmel. I'm going to the nation's capital to see what happened. I am expecting revival that starts on Mount Carmel to sweep across the nation. So I'm gone. I'm going. So he runs. He shows up, but then something very unexpected and very disappointing takes place. And that's where we find Elijah in our text this morning in 1 Kings chapter 19. Let's read verses 1 through 5. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, 
if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. And Elijah was afraid. And he ran for his life. When he came came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. So Elijah receives a message that shakes him to the core. So much so that he flees for his life. He hits the trail and starts heading south. So what's going on here? This is a guy that just stood up to 450 very dedicated, very committed committed Baal prophets. And won. But he hears the threat from Jezebel and he runs. What's the deal? And I think part of it is Jezebel's fierceness. She is a very, very fierce and powerful woman. What she says usually happens. And she's killed before. She's killed prophets before for similar things, for similar rebellions. But I think there's something else going on here. I don't think it's just the threat from Jezebel, the fear that that invokes. I think Elijah is looking around and he's seeing that, wow, that complete and total victory that I was expecting, it, it didn't happen. I threw everything in the kitchen sink at that Baal god on Mount Carmel, and it wasn't enough. I had a perfectly locked plan. I had all the confidence in the world. The miracles happened, but still Jezebel's heart is as hard as stone. Still, the nation is worshiping Baal. So yes, he runs out of fear, but he also runs out of complete and utter disappointment. He doesn't know what to do next. So he runs. I don't know if you've been in a place like that, but I think we can all relate. And it reminds me of a great scene from Dumb and Dumber, yes, that classic movie um, starring Jim Carrey, where he is lamenting at the place where his life has brought him. He says, I'm sick of this dump. I'm sick of this place. I'm sick of this job. We don't got no jobs. We don't got no money. Our pets' heads are falling off. And then he says this. You know what I'm sick and tired of, Harry? I'm sick and tired of having to eke my way through life. Sick and tired of being a nobody. But most of all, I'm sick and tired of having nobody. Brilliant piece of acting right there. But I think we can... I think we can relate to that feeling, that feeling of sick and tired where we've had enough. I think that scene is powerful because it connects. 
And this is where we find Elijah. And this is where God steps in and starts to do work. We've got to, we've got to see this now. Watch what God does. Let's look at verses 5 to 7 now. The second half of verse 5 all the way to 7. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. God steps in with perfect timing to meet a simple but pressing need. So we see Elijah, he comes to the end of himself. Imagine him collapsing under the shade of a broom tree. He's gone so far into the wilderness, there's no turning back at this point. And remember, he's, he's at the place where he's given up. He's lost all hope. He's exhausted. But then the angel of the Lord comes with a gentle touch and a meal. So unexpected, but so perfect. And notice, there aren't any nice Christian-isms given here. There isn't any helpful advice. It's just a touch and food. I don't know if you've ever been to a place where you've had enough, where you've been so low as the prophet is right here, but if you have, you know that those kind of pieces of helpful advice, while they are well-intentioned, don't always do the trick. And sometimes when you're in that place and someone just suggests, hey, why don't you just, you know, maybe journal some more? Or, or, or maybe you just need to focus on praying a little bit more. You know intuitively that those spiritual disciplines are not what you need, and they're not going to help because the physical need is too much. Someone says, why don't you get into worship more? You don't even have the energy to stand, let alone sing. See, God understands this. And he comes with a gentle touch. He comes with food. And he offers rest. It's incredible. So I want to ask you, when was the last time you had a great casserole? Now, some of you, maybe you don't know what a casserole is. But it is uh, an amazing combination of food. Uh, I don't know, art, maybe you could call it. My mom makes an amazing, amazing tuna noodle casserole. I love it. Whenever I have this tuna noodle casserole, I feel like everything is right with the world. I am okay. VBS. Tater tot casserole. You knew I was going to say it. Okay? If I come in dragging before VBS later in the evening... As soon as I've had that tater tot casserole, I'm ready to go. I'm ready for the imagination station, the singing with all the whatever, hand motions and everything. I am ready to rock and roll because that meal is so perfect. That casserole is timed so well. 
But think about this. Think about those times when you've been struggling and someone from your church or a friend delivers a meal to your door. And it's not because the meal is excellent. It's not because the ingredients are perfect or it's been cooked really great. It's because of the care and the intentionality behind it that makes it so awesome. Now, sometimes we need to make the casserole and deliver it. Sometimes, like Elijah, we need to accept the casserole and recognize that is exactly what we need at that time. But God doesn't stop at the physical need. He keeps going. Yes, he addresses the physical need, but there's more. He's not just going to leave it at that. So let's look at, um, let's look at the next verses. Verses 8 to 14. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. After the food has provided enough strength for a journey of 40 days and 40 nights, Elijah gets up and he goes. And he travels to the, mount, the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai. This is the mountain where Moses encountered the burning bush that didn't burn up. This is where Moses received the Ten Commandments for the people of Israel. This is the place in the Old Testament where God hangs out. You've got to notice the shift that's taken place. Originally, Elijah ran because of fear. But this journey to the mountain of God, that's been authorized by God through the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord instructed him to go to the mountain. So this is an altogether different journey. The first was a journey of fear. Now this is a journey of purpose. And he goes to meet with God. And on the mountain, God confounds Elijah again with something else unexpected. A still, small voice. 
And God asks that profound question, what are you doing here? Now, he's not, God is not asking like he's surprised. He's not saying, oh, gee, Elijah, what are you doing here? No, he knows that Elijah's coming. He invited Elijah to come. It's not a surprise. It's also not out of some kind of con- condemning tone. I think many have read this text and said, okay, God is now going to condemn Elijah for running and uh, whatever, for his lack of faith. But here's what I think. I think God is not condemning Elijah, but inviting him. He's inviting Elijah to share his soul, to pour out everything that's on his heart. The guy's come to the end of himself. He doesn't need harsh discipline right now. He needs a a gentle invitation. Elijah, what are you doing here? Tell me about it. What's going on? And he's not asking because he doesn't know what's going on. He's not asking to get information. He's asking to get to the heart of what's going on in Elijah. The heart of the issue. And Elijah accepts the invitation. And as he's unloading to God, as he's expressing that heartfelt pain and sorrow and hurt at the people of Israel and what they have done, how they've abandoned the covenant, as he's doing that, he starts to realize and his passion becomes clearer and clearer. You know that the things that you make you sad, the things that you cry about, that, that, those tears, that's a good indicator of what you care about. And here we have Elijah doing a very similar thing. He is essentially unloading on God. And his passion and his purpose is being clarified. Now, at my annual, annual review this year with Tim, I sat in his office one-on-one, and he asked me a question that functioned in this, a very similar way to this what are you doing here question. He said, listen, Kevin, if, when you think about your job, what would be the things about your job that if I took them away, you would be heartbroken? It, it, it would crush you. So I said, okay, let me put on my thinking cap here. Uh, I know I'll, I'll go with my strengths assessment, my spiritual gifts, uh, teaching. Uh, if you took away teaching, that would really upset me. Um, oh, oh, I got another one. What about um, my, the opportunity to encourage people? If you took that away, that would be a real bummer for me. And then Tim pressed a little bit further. And he said, what if I took away this student? or this student, or this student. And names and faces and stories started running through my mind. And something started to tug at my heart. I noticed a little moisture in my eyes, something I'm not so accustomed to. And then as if Tim needed to do this, 
he pressed a little bit further. He said, what if I took away Catherine and your kids? And through hot tears, I said, don't do that. Don't mess with them. And there it was. I had it. Through that question, my passion had been exposed. All of the less important things, the urgent but less important things that I had been focusing on, went to the periphery. And I realized, relationship. That's what this is about. And guess what? That changed my passion. That changed my perspective. And then changed my purpose. Right there. That refocusing. So we've seen Elijah get back on the right path with a meal and a nap. We've also seen his perspective and his passion and his purpose be clarified. But now we're going to see God's covenant plan is given to meet yet another layer of need. So if you'll think back to the text, Elijah gives this long list, not once but twice, of what's going on as he's pouring out his soul. God accepts the list. He accepts it. But he also challenges the lies. He accepts the heart behind that outpouring of Elijah's soul, but he challenges the lies that are in there. Because see, Elijah, he's not the only prophet. If we look back in here, it says, he replied, I've been very zealous. I'm in verse 14. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. True. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. True. Broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. True. I'm the only one left. Not true. And now they are trying to kill me. No. When did it become they? Instead of her. Remember, Jezebel is trying to kill him, not they. It's as if God is saying, you think you're the only one left. You think you're seeing all that there is to see, so you ran. But I have not abandoned my covenant, even though my people have. Go back where you came from. Jump back into my plan. He essentially is saying, Elijah is not the plan. He's part of the plan. Elijah, you are not the plan. You are part of the plan. And there will be another decisive victory. There will be a decisive victory over Baal once and for all. And if you look at these verses 15 and 18, you're going to see he's got people lined up already to see this to see this thing through. But there's going to be another decisive victory over an even bigger and more destructive enemy. 
And it's pictured right here in our text. Remember the wind? The earthquake? And the fire? The cave. The cleft of the rock. That very same cleft that Moses stood in when the presence of the Lord passed by. That cave, that rock, protects Elijah from that powerful and righteous judgment. Why? So that that gentle whisper can come through. And a relationship between God and man can happen. This is an incredible image. For us on the other side of Calvary, we, we, we can connect the dots. Is that Jesus is the rock that God provides to shield us from his righteous judgment. Jesus is God's gentle care, his word of grace, and his covenant plan. Getting back to my friend, Timotheus. He texted from the hospital regarding his situation. He said, I'm angry, I'm confused, I'm discouraged. And it sounds crazy, but glory to God. He can say that because he's seeing more than the situation. He's accepted the casserole. He's hearing the still, small voice of God. He's trusting in the plan to be enough. The saga is still ongoing. Tomorrow is still uncertain. The doctors don't have any definitive answers. They really don't know what to do. But listen to this word that one of the chaplains at the hospital gave to Timotheus. He said, the doctors have the latest word, but God has the last word. Timotheus adds to this. There is nothing they can do but support my son's body while the Lord heals his brain. If the Lord doesn't move, nothing will change. Lord, our eyes are on you. And God does move and God does speak. If only in whispers. God shows up and offers his care, his word, and his plan. And listen to what happens next in Timotheus' story. Listen and watch what God can do. Comforted by the word of God. Timotheus puts on a different perspective, a kingdom perspective. And he starts seeing his time at the hospital there, waiting to find out what's going to happen next as being on assignment And as the whispers of God's word start flowing out of his mouth and into the conversations he's having with doctors, with patients, with nurses even, something incredible happens. No, not everybody is converted. Not everybody changes. But two nurses, not one, but two nurses, decide to accept Jesus. They pray with Timotheus. And they are immediately embraced by a community of Christian believers 
that have been in and out of the hospital to support Timotheus and his family since this whole thing started. That's grace. That's God's word at work in hearts. No fire has rained down from heaven and solved the problem of those seizures that Timotheus' son is having. But God's whisper, God's word is doing something incredible. So if you've ever run, or maybe you're currently on the run, from whatever it might be, running makes perfect sense if we don't have a God that can control the wind, that can shake mountains, that can call down fire, that can change hearts with a whisper. But if we do have that kind of God, what is there to fear? If we do have that kind of God, then we can and should and trust that He will be enough in the face of an uncertain tomorrow so that we can step out in faith courageously and boldly today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, give us hearts to know you. Protect us from your judgment in the cleft of the rock so that we can know the still small voice of your grace and of your salvation, of your invitation to pour all of our soul out before you. Help us to accept that invitation to hold back nothing so that we can be genuine and find personal relationship with you. Deal with us gently and tenderly, even though our sin, our prone-to-wander tendency is great. Lord, have your way with us today so that your people would be blessed by the word and the grace you give us for your name's sake and your kingdom's sake. Help us to realize that you are enough. In Jesus' name, amen.